We're in a series right now, we're wrapping it up. This is the final week of this series called Bible Stories. And we are going through some stories in the Old Testament that many of you have heard for the very first time uh, when you were a child. Some of these big stories like David and Goliath, Jonah and the great fish or Jonah and the whale. Today we're talking about Daniel and the lion's den. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter six in just a few moments. But what we're doing is trying to take a fresh look at these well-known stories that we're very familiar with a lot of the details of them, but maybe we haven't taken a good look at them recently. And so we're trying to look at these stories and understand, uh, make sure we understand all, all the different aspects of the stories, but specifically we're looking for one thing through the series, and that is where is Jesus in this story? Where does Jesus show up? What does this forecast about Jesus? What does this teach us about Jesus? How does this story make us hungry for Jesus? And so as we move towards this Christmas season and celebrating Christmas Eve this next Saturday, we're looking at these stories to kind of refresh us of the whole storyline of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, however you want to describe it there, the story that leads us towards the arrival of the Messiah. We're identifying with God's people through, uh, through these stories and, and looking for Jesus in them. So last week we were in Daniel chapter, I think it was chapter 3, um, talking about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And today we're focusing on the story of Daniel. Daniel, along with his friends, like we talked about last week, was brought to Babylon as either a teenager or a young man. And he was brought with his friends, his community of, of the, the friends that he had there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they all faced the same temptation. <clears throat> You're moving into a new culture. Babylon was really good at assimilating people. They were really good at bringing people together from different cultures and bringing them into Babylon and just making them all Babylonians. You know, they would, they would absorb these different con- uh, nations that they'd conquered, and they had it down to a science. And in Israel's case, it was to take the, the, the future leaders of Israel, you know, the people that would be the, the royal family or especially promising young people, and they would train them, they would educate them, and they would hope to just absorb them into Babylonian culture. So that way, Babylon would expand its empire through its influence, and it was a real subtle form of just making them disappear, essentially, which was especially challenging for the Israelites because they were supposed to be this distinct nation through which the Messiah would come, and they would be a blessing to all nations by the way that they served their God. They would serve God in a distinct way and maintain their identity as the people of God. And if they were going to do that, to be a blessing to all the nations and be the nation through which the Messiah would come, there needed to be some distinction. They couldn't just disappear into the empire that had conquered them. Daniel and his friends, um, starting in Daniel chapter 1, faced the temptation to eat the king's food and just to become essentially a Babylonian. And, and the food was really symbolic of that, that they had these laws, this dietary laws that they had been raised with that they were supposed to maintain and supposed to eat in a unique way and not eat the foods that other nations around them would eat. And so they said, rather than eating the king's food, can we just eat vegetables? We'll go on a vegan diet, you know, for this period of time. And then you can examine us at the end of this period of time, kings, uh, the, the servant of the king, and see how we're doing. And, and it turned out that after this period of time, Daniel and his friends were even more healthy and in better condition than the people who were eating the king's food. And Daniel distinguished himself amongst all of these kind of future leaders that he was training with, and he was given a a level of responsibility and authority in the empire of Babylon. 
In Daniel chapter two, we're told this story about um, King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream that troubles him. And the dream, he, he has this dream, but he doesn't want to tell anybody the dream. And he assembles all the leaders and the wise, wise men of Babylon. And he says, here's the challenge. I want you to tell me what my dream was and what the interpretation of the dream is. And they said, well, okay, tell us the dream and then we'll, t- we'll work on the interpretation. And he says, no, 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 no. You're crafty. I'm not going to tell you what my, what my dream was. I want you to tell me what my dream is and I want you to tell me what the interpretation is. And they said, well, how are we supposed to do that? Only God could do something like that. And Daniel and all of the wise men of the nation of Babylon are in danger of being executed because they can't carry out Nebuchadnezzar's request. And Daniel prays to his God and God gives him the interpretation of the dream. He tells him what the dream is and he appears before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, this is what your dream was. You dreamed about a statue made of different materials. And the interpretation of the dream is this. And it's about empires. It's about nations that would come uh, from a- after Nebuchadnezzar and all of these different things. And God gives him this interpretation. And because of this story in Daniel's life, he's given this place of authority amongst the wise men of Babylon. And we read about that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. And then we're going to be in Daniel 6 in just a moment here. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 48 says this. If I can get there. Oh, it's on the screen. I'll just read it there, maybe. Let's put it up there. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. All the wise men of Babylon are under um, Daniel's authority. Well, now many years pass And Daniel has gone from being this young man, this rising star in the nation of Babylon, serving under Nebuchadnezzar. Now in chapter five, he served under uh, Belshazzar. And then there's this big change between the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, this new um, world power that has taken over the Babylonian empire. And in Daniel chapter six, the story of Daniel and the lion's den begins. So let's read together. We're gonna read verses one through 10. And we'll talk about what we see there. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be brought to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done.
previously. So we see that Daniel had served under four different kingdoms or kings at this point. Darius is the current one. Actually, Cyrus will come after this story. And during his time, during his lifetime, the, the years that he lived in Babylon, there was these, again, this transition, as we mentioned, between the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians. And King Darius is the current leader, and he's relatively new in his kingdom at this time. And he is from a different culture. He's, he's from the Medes and the Persians, but he's in this Babylonian empire and trying to adopt everything and adapt this Babylonian culture into under his new reign. Da- Daniel is a civil servant. He's a government leader, but he's someone with a high amount of power and status. And by the time of this story, he's probably an old man, maybe somewhere in his 80s, maybe called out of retirement by King Darius. Daniel, we need you. I've heard good stories about you. You're a faithful um, leader in the government in Babylon, and we need someone like you to help organize the kingdom. And the kingdom is divided up into all these different areas and regions, and over them were all these leaders set in place. And Daniel was, was someone who was found to be faithful. He was someone who was found to have great integrity. And he was rising through the ranks of this new government formed by King Darius. And this inspires jealousy in his peers. They're looking at Daniel's life and they go, we don't like this. This guy's like, who does he think he is? He's so powerful. He thinks he's better than us or whatever. But his responsibility, right, to maintain peace in the different districts that they were overseeing, to make sure the taxes that needed to be collected were collected, and then to oversee under the rulership of King Darius all of these different parts of the empire. And then Daniel set over them, and eventually will be set over the entire uh, empire. But the satraps go, "We, we don't like this. And then there's some political maneuvering that begins happening, right? They are looking for something to take him down. They take a really close look at Daniel's life, and they're like, if we look close enough, maybe we can find something that we can accuse him of, or we can bring this to the king, and we can take him down. This is politics. This is political maneuvering. This is these other leaders with him looking for, they're, they're, they're doing opposition research, right? That's what we call it nowadays, right? They're looking at the other person, and they're trying to find ways of taking him down. But imagine he has such stellar character. They look at him, they examine. I don't know what this research is like. Are they looking through ancient binoculars at him and you know, following him around? They've got some kind of Babylonian private eyes you know, or something. Just follow him. I'm sure something will come up. You know? Try to pay him off. Get some favors you know, and try to, try to pay for the favors or something like that and, or try to manipulate him in some way and they can find nothing. Daniel's faithful. He does the right thing all the time. And the only thing they can find on him after trying to find something is like, he seems to be particularly faithful to his God. There's something about his relationship with his God, Yahweh, that's unique, and maybe we can use that to trip him up. Because this culture is not super friendly to worship of one true God. This is a polytheistic culture. This is a culture that doesn't believe in in Daniel's God. And so they're like, maybe we can use this. Maybe this is the thing that will mess him up. Can we use this? And so they come up with a plot. And the plot involves all of these people. There's like more than 100 of them that come together in this and appear before King Darius. Oh, King, live forever. All of us officials have a great idea we'd like to present to you. And it's 
probably a, a very impressive thing when all of the people from all over the empire come together and present something to you. But King Darius is there and all of this kind of maneuvering is happening and they say, King, we have an amazing idea. We've established, we, we think, to bring the empire together that maybe for the next 30 days, no one may pray to any other God except to you. We will treat you as our God. All of our prayer requests and everything will go towards you. So for the next 30 days, it's illegal to pray to any God but you, King Darius. And then I imagine Darius's response, like, I'm so humbled by this. Wow, wow. You guys, that's a, what a great idea. I accept, you know. His pride gets the best of him. He doesn't notice that they're putting, they're setting him up. And they're setting Daniel up. They're trying to take Daniel down. And he, he accepts this. He signs this document that they've got all ready for him. Here you go. It's our idea. We're all in agreement. And likely believing at this point, Daniel, whom he respects, who he, he wants to put in charge of all of them, he maybe believes that Daniel's in on this too. That's certainly the way that they presented it. And now Daniel has a problem. The, uh, he, he, do, what do you do? Do you, do you pray only to King Darius? Do you take a 30-day break from your regular spiritual practices and you pray to Darius because that's the law now? Do you pray to a man as if he is God? This is the same temptation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when we talked about this last week. Do you worship a false god or do you worship the true God? And then, but then Daniel could have worshiped the true God but just kept it really secret. Daniel could have closed the windows that he used to pray in front of, he used to pray in front of open windows and it was a very public thing. His private practice but done in a public way. And, and I would have felt, thought, you know, if I was in Daniel's shoes, like I'm just gonna close the window for 30 days <laughs> I'm gonna pray in private. I don't need to, this doesn't need to be super open and public. It's okay. It's reasonable in this case. You know, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world worship in secret because their lives are in danger if they worship openly. It seems like it would be reasonable in this case, but Daniel had this conviction that his practice needed to, to stay the same and that there was this consistency between his public practice and his private practice. That his, the, what, he, what he would do in his relationship with God was he would pray three times a day, Scripture tells us. This busy life, this political leader, this government leader with lots of responsibilities, lots of people counting on him, lots of people looking to him or working for him, but he has this practice three times a day, every day. He prays in front of this open window, praying towards his homeland, praying towards Jerusalem, and this was his practice. John Walvoord, who's a Bible scholar, writing about this part of Daniel's life, he says this, while, while Daniel's consistency of life and testimony has been evident throughout the book of Daniel, here we learn the inner secret. What made Daniel so faithful, what made Daniel a person of such integrity is this kind of thing. In spite of the pressures of being a busy executive with many demands upon his time, Daniel had retired to his house three times a day to offer his prayers for the peace of Jerusalem as well as for his personal needs. This was not the act of a person courting martyrdom, but the continuation of a faithful ministry and prayer which had characterized his long life. The scripture ob observes that he did this as he had done before. 
you know, Daniel, known for being a person of integrity around the kingdom, the only thing they could find that to trip him up was his practice, his spiritual practices. But where did that integrity come from? Where did that faith, where did that trust in God, where did that, that kindness, the goodness come from? Well, this, his, his inner life, his time with God, his connection, his reliance upon this, this prayer practice, that Daniel needed this and Daniel practiced this regularly, which is really good news for all of us because we all face challenges when it comes to our character, when it comes to the way we live our lives and that the same resources available to Daniel are the ones available to us. We, we can practice the same things Daniel did. We can talk to the same God that Daniel did. We actually know him better because we know him more fully through Jesus, that we, we can connect with him, we can ask for his help, we can rely upon him, we can spend time relationally with him in prayer. And I think Daniel's example is a, is a powerful example for us of what this can look like. This is the power source for his life. We also have a great example here about just the idea of being public with your faith. You know, it's one thing to kind of have this private practice that our relationship with God is about how we, how we think or how we live our lives sort of in private. But the challenge for all of us is to also be public with our faith, to make it known to the people who know us that, that we are followers of Jesus. And then we want everyone to know that about us. And I think there are, there are particular environments or places where you might find that more challenging than others. And I don't know what it is for you. Is it with your neighbor maybe? It's like, do, do your neighbors know that you're a follower of Christ? Or maybe it's just with complete strangers. Um, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your extended family. Maybe it's at your workplace where you have a more difficult time being public with your faith than other times. But Daniel, there's no distinction between private and public for him. He practices this in, in the most public way in front of an open window for any to see. And the response, him knowing, right, this, this I'm gonna do what I've been doing for all these years, living in isolation from my people. I'm gonna go to my window and I'm gonna pray three times a day We'll see the reaction from the plotting leaders here, starting in verse 11 of chapter 6. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God, twirling their mustaches or something, you know, like, ha-ha, we have you. <laughs> then they came near and said before the king, concerning the injunction, O king, um, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel 
Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, Get me out of here. No, he didn't say that. He said, (laughs) Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This situation for Daniel is a, is a, was a bad situation, where, but he was, he was practicing his faith. He was trusting in the true God, and God delivered him out of this situation. Now, listen, we... we often will judge how we're doing with God based purely on our circumstances. And at this part of the story, at the end of the story, we go, if, if he's basing how things are going between him and God based on his circumstances, we'd say, yay, he made it out of the den of lions. It's amazing. But just a few verses earlier, Daniel was in a really, really difficult situation, right? Um, in the study Bible, ESV study Bible, there's a great note about this passage. It says, for all his wisdom and integrity, Daniel's an old man facing the jealousy of peers, the arrogance of a king, isolation from his people, and a lion's den. Such circumstances remind us to trust God on the basis of his character, not on the basis of our circumstances. God has been so gracious to his people in the past, and he has promised to be gracious in the future. If, if you would have been Daniel in that situation, it might have been tempting to go like, where is God in this? I've been serving him faithfully for my whole life. I'm an old man now. And now this is what's happening. I've got all this petty, like these people that are just trying to take me out. Why, why isn't God helping me? Where is God in this? Facing a lion's den. By the way, what a brutal way to die. We have debates about this in our culture about capital punishment. Uh, at least we don't do this, right? This is pretty, pretty horrible. Like to be thrown into a den of lions, to be torn apart by lions as a form of execution, that's what Babylon was doing. Uh, what a brutal way of life and way of death and just the way that they valued human life at this time. Um, Daniel trusted God in spite of the difficult situations. And I think this is a, this is a reminder for us again like we talked about last week with the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. Um, they said, hey, we believe God can deliver us out of your hands, King Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, we'll never bow down and worship this golden image that you've, you've established. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are recognizing something that I think Daniel was recognizing as well, which is that we're not in a transactional relationship with an eternal, infinite God. We, we do trust that when we follow him, generally things go better in our lives. We're under the blessing of God and God produces good things. But it's not a transaction. It's not that we, we, we can always count on everything going perfectly as long as we're checking our spiritual boxes. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is omnipotent. God is beyond us. God has plans 
that, that he is putting together and, and working out. And we are not the center of the universe. Like we trust this eternal God and we live in relationship with him. We trust his character, knowing that he can bring good even out of bad situations. And sometimes he might have something in mind or some plan in place that he's bringing us through some difficulty for his glory or for the good of somebody else and that we can trust him. And so in these moments, we lean on our understanding of his character. He's a good God. He loves us and he has good plans and we can rest in that. We don't always just look to our circumstances to determine whether or not um, we are in a good place or whether or not our God is good. We trust his character. Daniel's response, you know, the, the king is agonized over this. The trap is set. The, the, the trap is, they said, oh, they, you know, the, 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 the people talking to the satraps and the leaders coming to King Darius, oh, I thought you said, I thought you said that they weren't allowed to worship any other god but you, but it turns out Daniel, and I know you're pretty fond of Daniel. Oh, man, what a bummer. Daniel's been praying to, other, to another god, King Darius. Oh, isn't that a shame? And Darius is scrambling to try to get Daniel out of this situation, right? He's looking for legal loopholes. He's trying to find some way to deliver his best leader from this situation. And he, did, for, he says this, this law cannot be revoked. We don't know exactly what's going on there. He's trying to save face or there really is something in there. There's a reference in Esther to the law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked as well. And so there's something about their legal system at this time where there's no changing it at this point. He's locked in, he's committed. Darius, even though he's so powerful, cannot get Daniel out of this situation. And so he says, Daniel, I'm sorry, we've got to do this here, but the God whom you serve so faithfully, maybe, maybe that God can do something for you. Daniel spends a night in the lion's den. And the next day, the king that couldn't sleep, you know, waiting for the break of day to make sure that the, you know, the, the punishment had been fulfilled, but maybe there's a chance, you know, maybe he's been able to fight lions for a whole night, you know. Daniel, did your God, could your God rescue you out of this situation? And Daniel's response, oh, king, live forever. This is essentially a long live the king. It's the way you greet kings in this culture. Yeah, God sent an angel who shut the mouths of the lions and he's delivered me. They bring Daniel out. Daniel's brought back from the dead almost, so to speak, right? This is a sure death that no one survives this kind of punishment here, but he comes out and he's, he's whole, he's healthy, he's survived. His faith in the true God, his, the true God has rescued him from the mouth of the lions. Later in Daniel 6, a passage we're not gonna cover, um, King, King Darius praises the true God. He, 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 there's something about the way God's delivered him delivered Daniel that makes him worship and make a proclamation about Daniel's God being the true God. Now, um, Daniel is a great example for us of following Jesus at different phases of life or following the true God, I guess, in, in this case, at different stages of life. You look at Daniel as a young man, he's transported off to Babylon and he's living in this culture that's so foreign and probably so tempting that to just conform into the Babylonian culture become like a Babylonian, become, get absorbed into this, and there's rewards and pleasures there for, for you. But he, he's a young man, and he's standing firm. And he's probably a teenager. Like you think about our youth group um, at this church. We have so many awesome youth, a part of our church community. And I mean, they're like his age. 
And the pressures of that and withstanding the pressures of that. I used to think, I remember when I was a kid, just thinking like nothing really counted until I was a grown-up, you know. It didn't really matter what I did with my life when I was 15. But it's like, no, Daniel is impacting his culture. He's impacting his peers. He's following God faithfully as a teenager. And so he's a great example of following Jesus as a, as a young man or a young woman in, in, in your case, whatever the case may be, but following the true God, being faithful to following the true God, trusting in him and living your life in a faithful manner. But then later in his 80s, he's still doing it. And he's an example of being faithful to God even in this late in life period of time. Faithfulness at every stage of life. Being ready for whatever God might have for him and, and whatever temptation, whatever difficulty he might face, being faithful at every single stage of life. The ESV study Bible that I quoted earlier also had a great note that, you know, Daniel is, he basically lived his entire life in a lion's den, culturally speaking. So this moment when he's in an actual lion's den, this is kind of similar, almost a metaphor for the way his whole life has been. He's been surrounded by this Babylonian culture, surrounded by dangers on every side and pressures and all of these things. And he's, the way he's lived his life is like he's been in a lion's den this whole time. But he's faithful. He's following the true God. I, I've been telling you that we're looking for Jesus over and over again in these stories. And there's, it's, when you think about this, Daniel being thrown into what could be his tomb, what could be where he meets his end, where he meets his maker? And then a stone is placed over the entrance of that, and it's sealed. And then, man, this reminds me so much of what, when Jesus was buried in the tomb, and then a stone was rolled over it, and it was sealed. But with Daniel, Daniel's protected. The mouths of the lions are shut, but with Jesus, he's, he, he, he dies on the cross. When he's placed in the tomb and it's sealed up, he's he's. He's died for us. He gave his life, this infinite gift of love for, for his people. And then Daniel, the stone is rolled away and he's almost brought up to new life, like almost this resurrection kind of thing. Like how do you survive this situation? He's, he's brought up and he's, he's alive with Jesus. Jesus rises from the dead. The stone is rolled away and, and he's raised to life. And so we are raised to life in him as well his resurrection showing that the sacrifice has been accepted and that he is our good God. He has triumphed over sin and death and we can have life in him. There's another really interesting connection though that's a strange one that I wanna finish our time with uh, together in this, the story of Jesus and the way we see Jesus and what, what about Daniel's life points us towards Jesus. In Matthew chapter two, which if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn there. We're going to read a big chunk of Matthew chapter 2. We have this strange group of characters that show up at the birth of Jesus or shortly after Jesus is born. This is the story of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this connection that I want to make here, remember in, in we, we read Daniel chapter 2 verse 48, Daniel was put in charge over all the wise men of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? And then you have these mysterious, strange people from the east, these wise men that travel, they see a star, they travel all across you know, the, the, this land to get to Israel and they show up to King Herod. We're here because we've been expecting this king to be born. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We have come to worship him. Now, many biblical scholars connect these wise men, these strange, you know, that we call them the magi with Daniel and his life in Babylon. So this word magi that, that we use is where we get the word magician from. This is a class of people in the ancient world for which Daniel was the leader in Babylon over all of the, of the wise men that it seems likely that Daniel had pointed them in that direction. Hey, someday a king will be born. And there will be a star. And that maybe Daniel was looking at Numbers 24, which is this weird prophecy by Balaam, who wasn't even a believer in the true God, but, but said that there would be a star that would rise out of Jacob. And then Daniel, with his, in Daniel chapter 9, calculating when the Messiah would be born, that there would be a certain number of years from the beginning of the construction of Jerusalem or reconstruction of Jerusalem to the appearance of the Messiah. And he was pointing them, hey, look, be looking around this time for the Messiah to arrive. This seems to be what happened here with the story of the wise men. And then all these years later, generations of centuries later, these wise men show up with gifts for Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And they bring these extravagant gifts because they're expecting to see a king and they meet someone who's living in humble circumstances, but they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And every time I read gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I think of this cartoon that I want to show you. And I've got to show it to you up here. Right, we picked up the gold and the myrrh. What on earth is that? Isn't that great? Frankenstein? My daughter... My daughter was pretty sure it was Frankenstein. Like she didn't, I don't, I don't know if she was picturing this or not, but gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh, you know, it's like not quite, right? Frankincense was a very expensive incense. Myrrh was this ointment, again, very expensive, but strange, 
not very practical gifts, right? When, when someone shows up to meet you and your baby, maybe you're expecting diapers, baby formula, I don't know. Mary and Joseph receive these extravagant gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh from these wise men that come from the East. But we know that um, Mary and Joseph were very poor. And we know that because in the Gospels, it tells us the story of the offerings that they offered at the temple on the eighth day after Jesus' birth. At his dedication, they were required to bring offerings to the temple. And they, there were two options. Here's the regular offering, but if you're too poor to afford that, you can offer this offering instead. And they offered the poor offering. They were poor. They were living in poverty. And now they get all of this wealth dropped into their lap by these strange wise men from the east at just the right time because they had to escape. They had to go on the run from a murderous king who was trying to get rid of a potential rival. So King Herod goes after Jesus and Mary and Joseph, but they've escaped to Egypt. And how do, how do poor people escape and go on a journey like this? They need some resources. And they were given these extravagant gifts at just the right time that they needed them to be able to escape and to go to safety. How powerful is this that God put Daniel in the right place to send forward gifts, so to speak, to the Messiah so that they, they could have those gifts at just the right time to be able to escape to safety. Wow. God is good. God is faithful. God is in control. In Romans 8.28, the Bible says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The even part of God's purpose for having Daniel where he was was likely to be able to send the wise men to Jesus when he needed them the most. God is good. We can trust him. We can trust his character. We can trust his faithfulness. And may we, like Daniel, pursue that God who can help us, who can live his life through us. Daniel was not amazing because Daniel was amazing. Daniel was amazing because he relied on God. And he had this practice of praying and seeking God regularly. And we the same thing that is available to us. So let's seek him together. Let's pursue him. Let's follow him well. And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you and learn from your word. I pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we move towards this time of communion. I pray that you would help us to uh, be reminded and to have full and grateful hearts um, Lord, about what you've done for us and who you are. And Lord, during this Christmas season and always, may you find us faithful. May a world that desperately needs the hope of the good news of the gospel look to the followers of Jesus and see them living these faithful, good lives of character but, and then being public and open about why we live this way and who it is that we serve. And Lord, we thank you for this series. Thank you for this time that we've been studying these Old Testament stories. And as we move towards Christmas Eve next Saturday, Lord, may we draw near to you. May we focus on you. May we seek you as the source of all of our hope. And Lord, any who has yet to meet you in this room or begin that relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you draw them near right now. Bring them into your family right now. May they put their trust in you right now. Lord, you are so good. You are so faithful. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.